This is Space Time, Series 24, Episode 112, full broadcast on the 4th of October, 2021. Coming up on Space Time, three big Mars quakes rock the red planet, spacecraft move into Mars solar conjunction, and NASA technicians finally leave COVID-19 lockdown in Darwin and head to Arnhem Land to begin preparations for the agency's Down Under launch program. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA's InSight lander has recorded a massive 4.2 Mars quake on the Red Planet, which shook the spacecraft for nearly an hour and a half. The event on September the 18th was one of the biggest and longest-lasting Mars quakes the mission has ever detected, and it was a fitting celebration to mark the lander's 1,000th Martian day, or Sol. The Trembler was the third major quake detected by InSight in a month. Back on August the 25th, the mission seismometer detected two quakes of magnitudes 4.2 and 4.1. Now, for comparison, the magnitude 4.2 quake has five times the energy of the mission's previous record holder, a magnitude 3.7 Mars quake detected back in 2019. InSight studies seismic waves to learn more about the Martian interior. See, These seismic waves change as they travel through the planet's crust, its mantle and core, and that provides scientists with a way to peer deep below the surface. What they learn can help shed light not only on Mars, but also how all the rocky planets form, including Earth and its moon. But these quakes may not have been detected at all had mission managers not taken action earlier in the year as Mars's elliptical orbit took it further away from the Sun. See, lower temperatures associated with greater distance from the sun required the spacecraft to rely more on its heaters to keep warm. That, combined with the dust build-up on InSight's solar panels, had reduced the lander's overall power levels, requiring the mission to conserve energy by temporarily turning off some instruments. The team managed to keep the seismometer running by taking a counterintuitive approach. They used InSight's robotic arm to trickle sand near one of the solar panels, in the hopes that as the wind gusts carried it across the panel, the granules would sweep off some of the dust. And the plan worked, and over several dust-cleaning activities, the team saw power levels remain fairly steady. Now that Mars is approaching the sun once again, power is starting to inch back up. InSight's principal investigator, Bruce Bannart, from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, says even after more than two years, Mars still seems to have given us something new with these two new quakes, which have unique characteristics. While the September 18 quake is still being studied, scientists already know a lot more about the August 25 quakes. That magnitude 4.2 event occurred about 8,500 kilometres from InSight, the most distant trembler the lander has so far detected. Scientists are still trying to pinpoint the exact source and direction of these seismic waves, but they already know that this shaking occurred too far to have originated from where InSight has detected almost all previous large quakes. They were all from the Cerebus Fossi region, around 1,609 kilometres away a volcanic terrain where lava may have flowed within the last few million years, which is incredibly recent in geologic terms. 
One especially intriguing possibility is that these quakes originated from Valles Marineris, the giant 4,000-kilometre-long, 7-kilometre-deep canyon system that scars the Martian equator. The approximate centre of the canyon is around 9,700 kilometres from inside. To the surprise of scientists, the August 25th quakes were also of two different types. The magnitude 4.2 quake was dominated by slow, low-frequency vibrations, while fast, high-frequency vibrations characterised the magnitude 4.1 quake. The magnitude 4.1 quake was also much closer to the lander, only about 925 kilometres away. And that's all good news for seismologists. See, recording different quakes from a range of different distances with a range of different kinds of seismic waves provides more information about a planet's internal structure. Earlier this year, mission scientists used previous Mars quake data, which we reported on space-time, to detail the depth and thickness of the planet's crust and mantle, as well as the size of its molten core. Despite their differences, the two August quakes do have something in common, other than both being big. They both occurred on the same day, the windiest, and to a seismometer, noisiest time on Mars. See, inside seismometer usually finds Mars quakes at night, when the planet cools off and winds are low. But the signals from these quakes were large enough to rise well above the background noise caused by the Martian winds. And to think, just a few years ago, scientists believed Mars would have no longer been seismically active because it had cooled down so much, and the only seismic noises likely to be heard would have been from meteoroid impacts. How our view of the red planet has changed. This is space time. Still to come. NASA's Mars fleet prepares for solar conjunction and key NASA personnel released from COVID-19 quarantine in Darwin to begin preparations for the agency's down-under rocket launch program. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Planet Earth's invasion of Mars has hit the pause button as the red planet moves into solar conjunction. Mars solar conjunction happens every two years as the red planet's orbit takes it behind the Sun as seen from Earth. The many missions in orbit around Mars and on the Martian surface will continue collecting data during this time, but mission managers back on Earth will stop sending commands to them until around mid-October. It's not just that the Sun's sheer size physically blocks out communications between the two planets during Mars' solar conjunction, but the hot ionized plasma of the Sun's atmosphere can also corrupt and interfere with radio signals sent by mission managers to Mars spacecraft, and that could cause the spacecraft to experience damage. This year, most mission managers have stopped sending commands between October the 2nd and October 16. A few will extend that commanding moratorium, as it's called, a day or two either direction, depending on the angular distance between Mars and the Sun in Earth's sky. For NASA, it means that while Mars missions won't be quite as active over the next few weeks, they'll still let the Mars Relay Network at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, know their state of health. And each mission has been given some homework to do until they hear from mission managers. Perseverance will be taking weather measurements with its Mars Environmental Dynamics Analyzer sensors. It'll look for dust devils with its cameras, though it won't be moving its mast or masthead. 
It'll run its radar imager for the Mars subsurface experiment and capture new sounds with its microphone. Meanwhile, the Ingenuity Mars rotocopter will remain stationary at its current location, around 175 metres from Perseverance, and it will communicate its status weekly to the rover. At the same time, Perseverance's near-twin rover, Curiosity, will take weather measurements using its rover environmental monitoring station sensors. It'll take radiation measurements using its radiation assessment detector and dynamic albedo neutron sensor. And it will keep an eye out for dust devils using its suite of cameras. And the InSight mission, which we spoke about earlier, will continue using its seismometer to detect new tremblers, just like the large earthquakes it captured recently. As for NASA's three currently active orbiters, Odyssey, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and MAVEN, they'll continue relaying data from the agency's surface missions. That's in addition to gathering their own science. While a limited amount of science data will reach Earth during Mars-Solar conjunction, the spacecraft themselves will be storing all their data until the moratorium's over. That means there'll be a temporary pause in the stream of raw images available from Perseverance, Curiosity and Insight but then they'll beam their remaining data to NASA's Deep Space Communications Network, a system of massive Earth-based radio antennas managed by JPL. Engineers will then spend about a week downloading all the information before normal spacecraft operations resume. Glenn Nagel from the CSIRO's NASA Deep Space Communications Network camera tracking station says if the teams monitoring these missions determine that any of the collected science data is being corrupted, they can easily have it retransmitted. So while we have Mars on the opposite side of the sun from us, the sun literally causes breakups in the communication with our Mars orbiting and surface spacecraft. So you don't, during that period, send commands to spacecraft because those commands could be affected by the gravity, the radiation, the energy from the sun, and that could be a corrupted signal to arrive to your spacecraft. So during those periods, the spacecraft are put into a sort of a hibernation mode to do minimal work. So if we take, for instance, a spacecraft like Perseverance, it's literally just being told, stare at these two spots for the next two weeks. And once we get back in full communication with you, send back that data. And with ingenuity. Yeah, so the vehicles are, are all designed and, and the scientists themselves are quite confident that they will survive that sort of, you know, downtime. So for a vehicle like the Ingenuity helicopter sitting there in the region where Perseverance is, it will literally just sit there taking in energy from the sun on its solar cells and uh, keeping those batteries charged so that we can recontact it and continue the amazing journey it's had on Mars over the last six months. Well, I've got you. All that refurbishment work on the big dish has now been completed. That was completed earlier this year, but uh, the upgrades aren't over yet. Tell me what's happening. So right at the moment, we are in the process of doing some upgrades to our 34-metre antennas uh, to continue on from the work that the Deep Space Station 43 completed earlier this year. And those upgrades will actually install some new K-band and KA-band transmitter and receiver systems. So working in frequencies that we'll be using specifically to support NASA's Artemis program, those missions to return humans to the moon over the next few years. So the Deep Space Network right around the planet, our three stations, the one in here in Canberra, of course, and our stations in Spain and in the United States, all their 34 meter dishes will receive those upgrades so that we can support, hopefully, bringing back again those very first images of the uh, first woman and the first person of colour to walk on the surface of the moon in just the next few years. And, of course, we're just two months away from the launch of the first Artemis flight. Yes, our camera station is very much part of that. Uh, Artemis 1 
uh, or exploration mission one, as we call it internally, is a, a, a uncrewed vehicle using the entire space launch system stack with the Orion vehicle to fly out around the Earth, out around the Moon, the full-scale dress rehearsal of those first human missions in the next few years. So that mission will go out, go to the Moon, return, uh, the capsule re-enter. So all the systems on board will be recording every bit of data. The Deep Space Network will be crucial in collecting that information and sending any commanding to that spacecraft to make sure that it's a successful mission. And then leading up to the next Artemis missions in probably about 2023 at this stage to be able to send the first humans back to the Moon first in the lunar orbit, and then following missions after that, perhaps in the 2024 to 26 time frame, getting those first boots of humans back on the surface of the moon after more than 50 years. And of course, this will be the most powerful NASA rocket launch well, since the mighty Saturn V moon rocket. Yes, it has been many, many years in development since the end of the space shuttle program back in 2010 to build this new vehicle using all the best technologies of the last 50 years, the engines of the space shuttle, the solid rocket booster systems in a much larger stack than has previously been done with a highly sophisticated Orion capsule to carry multiple crew members into space for long journeys uh, to the moon, uh, to Lunar Gateway, the station that they're planning to build around the moon, and even for future journeys, taking humans beyond lunar orbit and perhaps off to Mars in the next 10 to maybe 20 years. That's right. There will be a need for a deep space module, which will be attached to Orion for those first human journeys to Mars. And they will learn an enormous amount through not only the International Space Station, which they've been flying in Earth orbit since early 2000, but also with Gateway. Gateway is this small station, multiple nations working together to put an outpost around the moon so that we can use it as a staging post to send astronauts to and from lunar orbit and down to the surface, but also as a long-term outpost to learn about living away from our planet, away from the sort of resources that we take for granted here to be able to live in an environment for these longer journeys, eight to ten months to get to somewhere like Mars, which is a thousand times further away than the moon. The new dish at Madrid, how's that going? So actually, two new antennas have been built at Madrid over the last few ah, years. Right. Uh, so uh, the first of their antennas uh, is up and operational now. Uh, the second antenna is also in its commissioning phase and will come online uh, over the next few months. There are currently a new antenna also being built at our Californian station at Goldstone, and that antenna will be actually the first of a new generation of communication dishes. We've been using radio frequencies for many, many decades to communicate with our spacecraft out across the solar system. But with the needs of data return and especially uh, high-resolution imagery and voice communications and other things we'll need for when we're sending astronauts further into deep space, optical communication will be the way to go. Far greater bandwidth, getting more information back at a better quality. And so that new dish in California will be the first of an optical radio frequency hybrid antenna. And if all that goes well, before the end of this decade, Canberra will also be getting one of those optical hybrid dishes. That's the CSIRO's Glenn Nagel from NASA's Deep Space Communications Network Canberra Tracking Station. And this is Space Time. Still to come. 
Well, they've been delayed and placed in the quarantine because of COVID-19, but now a team of NASA technicians have been released from the Howard Springs Quarantine Facility near Darwin to begin preparations for the agency's down-under rocket launch program. And later in the science report, researchers create the world's whitest paint. Clearly, they don't live in a house full of kids. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A team of key NASA personnel have been released from COVID-19 quarantine in Darwin to begin preparations for the agency's rocket launch program from Equatorial Launch Australia's new Arnhem Land Space Centre. The project, which has been delayed by the pandemic for around two years, is expected to begin flying sounding rockets from the facility by the middle of next year. The plans call for an initial three rocket launches on suborbital ballistic trajectories lasting up to 20 minutes each and carrying scientific instruments for engineering, tests and astrophysics research. The flights will provide scientists with an opportunity to study astronomical objects and events that can't be seen from the Northern Hemisphere sounding rocket ranges NASA normally uses. And of course, the Arnhem Land Space Centre isn't the only rocket range coming online down under. There is, of course, the famous Woomera rocket range in outback South Australia, which the Australian military uses and which NASA has also used in the past. Also in South Australia, a private company called Southern Launch has developed two facilities on the Air Peninsula, one to test rockets and missiles at Coonabra, west of Sejuna, and the other to launch orbital rockets at Whaler's Way, south of Port Lincoln. Meanwhile, on the nation's east coast, Gilmore Space have approval to build their own orbital rocket launch facility at Abbott Point on the northern Queensland coast. And Black Sky Aerospace have a sounding rocket launch facility at Gundawindi on the New South Wales-Queensland border. It sounds like Australia may become a busy place for space over the next few years. This is Space Time. Time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. In what some medical experts are describing as a potential major breakthrough, a new Tamiflu-like antiviral pill developed by US drug manufacturer Merrick could halve the number of people dying or being hospitalised from severe COVID-19. The new drug, called Molnupiravir, is designed to introduce RNA errors into the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus's genetic code. Merrick says viral sequencing shows the drug is effective against all coronavirus variants, including the highly transmissible Delta strain. The company is seeking emergency United States use authorization following successful interim trials. These initial trials showed that after three days of treatment, infectious SARS-CoV-2 virus was found in just 2% of participants taking 800 milligrams of molnupiravir compared to 17% taking a placebo. By day 5, the virus was no longer detectable in any participants receiving 400 milligrams or 800 milligrams of the drug, but was still found in 11% of placebo participants. Overall, researchers found that only 7.3% of those given molnupiravir twice a day for five days were hospitalized and none had died by 29 days. 
That compared to 14.1% hospitalization and 8 fatalities in the placebo group. However, scientists warn the drug will not end the pandemic and it's still no substitute for vaccinations. The World Health Organization says more than 8 million people have been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus, with almost 5 million confirmed fatalities and over 240 million people infected since the deadly disease first spread out of Wuhan, China. Groundbreaking new research has discovered a likely cause of Alzheimer's disease. The findings, reported in the journal Plus Biology, offers potential new prevention and treatment opportunities for what's become Australia's second leading cause of death. Scientists have identified that a probable cause of Alzheimer's is the leakage from blood into the brain of fat-carrying particles transporting toxic proteins. Now, while researchers have long known that the hallmark feature of people living with Alzheimer's was the progressive accumulation of toxic protein deposits within the brain called beta amyloid, they didn't know where the amyloid originated from, or for that matter, why it was being deposited in the brain. The new research shows that these toxic protein deposits most likely leak into the brain from fat-carrying particles in the blood called lipoproteins. This blood-to-brain pathway is significant because if doctors can manage the levels of lipoprotein amyloid in blood and prevent their leakage into the brain, it opens up potential new treatments to prevent Alzheimer's disease and slow memory loss. Scientists at Purdue University have created what they believe is the world's whitest paint. The paint is so white it could eventually reduce or even eliminate the need for air conditioning. That's assuming, of course, they can keep it clean. The ultra-white paint reflects some 98.1% of solar radiation while also emitting infrared heat. It was developed as part of efforts to reflect sunlight off buildings and combat global warming. The key is very high concentrations of different size particles of barium sulfate, which is also used in photo paper and cosmetics. Because the paint absorbs less heat from the sun than it emits, a surface coated with this paint is cooled below the surrounding ambient temperature without consuming power. Now, typical commercial white paint gets warmer rather than cooler because it reflects only between around 80 to 90% of sunlight and so can't make surfaces cooler than their surroundings. But by using this new paint to cover a roof area of, say, 100 square metres, it could result in a cooling power of 10 kilowatts. That's more than a typical domestic air conditioner. Now the only problem is keeping it clean. A new study has resolved the mystery of where the Etruscan civilization originated. It turns out they were local Italians. The Etruscan civilization, which flourished during the Iron Age in central Italy, has intrigued scholars for millennia because of their remarkable metallurgical skills and the now extinct non-Indo-European language, which made them very different from their contemporary neighbours. And this led to speculation that they must have originated from a different part of the world. But now a report in the journal Science Advances has provided genetic evidence confirming they originated from central and southern Italy. The findings are based on genomic evidence from 82 ancient individuals, spanning from 800 BCE to the year 1000. Despite a few individuals from the eastern Mediterranean, northern Africa and central Europe, the Etruscan-related gene pool remained stable for at least 800 years through the Iron Age and into the Roman Republic period. 
It was only during the time of the Roman Empire that the Etruscan gene pool experienced a large-scale genetic shift due to the large-scale displacement of Eastern Mediterranean people by the Romans. Australian clothing firm Lorna Jane has been fined $5 million in the federal court for claiming that its clothes prevent the transmission of COVID-19. The company claimed its antivirus activewear had been sprayed with a substance called LJ Shield, which protected people against pathogens. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission took the court action, accusing the company of making false and misleading claims. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says the court found that the claim was predatory and the company had sought to exploit fear and concern. Lorna Jane is a company that's been around for about 30 years. It's, uh, it was sort of uh, exercise gear initially. They've sold a whole range of fashion clothing and uh, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, they were selling active wear, as they call it, that had been sprayed with a substance called LJ Shield, which they obviously Lorna Jane, which protected people against pathogens, including COVID-19. So here was, here was something you could wear. Yeah, to stop, yeah, allegedly. Yeah, it's been found to be untrue. So, yeah, they were claiming it could protect against uh, COVID. And TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, fined them about 40 grand last year, saying it's false advertising with the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission, the ACCC, took them to court and they were found guilty and fined $5 million, which is quite a lot. I mean, I'm just trying to find out exactly how much Lorna Jane turns over. It's about $180 million. That's a fair, it's a fair, five million is a fair swag of their profit as the founders recently bought back all the outstanding shares of their company. They're now responsible for it. So um, it's a very sad day for Lorna Jane. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from Spacetime with StuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 